Welcome to the Greater Possibilities Podcast, where we put concerns into context and opportunities into focus. I am your host, Brian Levitt. Jody Phillips is off this week. And I think today we will be leaning into that line about putting concerns into context. Justin Livingood is coming up. He will be helping us put recent concerns into context. Justin is the senior portfolio manager of the Invesco Midcap Growth Strategy and a senior research analyst in healthcare, financials, real estate sector on the Invesco Discovery Growth Strategies. So, real quick, anyone who has not been paying attention over the last couple of days, we did have the uh, second largest bank failure in U.S. history. That would be Silicon Valley Bank. And I know that that sounds uh, particularly disconcerting to a number of people. Now, this was a bank that was heavily focused on banking for tech startups. And, you know, those tech startups had their deposits at the bank, but were largely funded by venture capitalists. And when that money dries up, and the tech startups need access to their deposits, money starts to leave the bank. Over 90% of those deposits, for some reason or another, which Justin may help us understand, were not insured. And the banks were sitting on what seemed to be high-quality assets, but many of those high-quality assets were U.S. Treasuries or mortgage-backed securities, which had become worth less as interest rates had gone up. So selling those assets to meet deposits would have resulted in sizable losses for the banks and ended up in a bank failure and concerns that that would then lead to crisis throughout the regional or smaller bank uh, parts uh, industries as um, concerns that deposits would then move and more banks would fall under similar pressure. So, of course, we got a policy response by the Fed, the FDIC, and the Treasury. The bank did fail. It's not a bailout. Don't listen to what you hear on Twitter. The bank did fail. The depositors were protected. Um, and regional banks get access to a line of credit from the Fed. So that's the backstory. Let's bring in Justin. Justin, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. You know, you and I have known each other a long time. Have we done this enough? I mean, are we are we through cycling through crises, or is this just the rest uh, of our career? I can't believe, uh, if I think back a week ago, that I'd be sitting here today talking about the failure of actually two banks, not just Silicon Valley, but Signature was a $100 billion bank that went under on Sunday night. So And Silvergate. And crypto before player. that, Silvergate, exactly. Yeah. So th- this is this is definitely uh, more of a, a shock than uh, perhaps even some of the crises we've dealt with in the past. Yeah, and Justin is such a good resource for me and, and somebody I always talk to when things like this happen. And we have just been through way too many of these. I mean, from yeah. having conversations about a global financial crisis and a, and a pandemic and, and on and on, it's it gets a little tiresome. But here we are again. Let's start from where we were, you know, before all of this happened. Uh, You always hear that when the Federal Reserve tightens interest rates significantly, something ends up breaking. Had you been concerned that something could break? And were you particularly concerned about anything in the banking sector? I wasn't concerned about a break, um, at least in this degree. And the reason is the credit uh, picture in the banking industry was and still is quite clean. Yeah. Um, the, the the bank CEOs were actually pretty surprised, and I'm talking about large and small banks, 
that they haven't been seeing more non-performing assets and loans starting to go slip past due, which you might expect at this point of an economic cycle. That's typically where a bank crisis starts on the credit side. And that's what happened in 07, 08, et cetera. That wasn't happening here. In fact, Silicon Valley Bank was not on North Signature, any watch lists of any regulators. Yeah, some, some of the analysts had them as outperform. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what I was concerned about, particularly as a, a growth investor, um, the banking industry was struggling with the yield curve right. and the, the, the downward slope of the yield curve, which was pressuring net interest margins and their ability to grow you know, profitably their, their loan book and their earnings. Um, and so through the back half of last year, and certainly here at the start of 23, earnings estimates for the group has been, have been coming down. You know, the stocks had not been performing well and valuations had been compressing. But it was, again, entirely related to yield curve dynamics and sort of, uh, you know, just the, the bank's inability to grow more. It had nothing to do with credit, had nothing to do with people expecting some sort of an exogenous shock like this to, to suddenly put, you know, a, a run on the banks in, in front of everyone. Um, so, so while the group was struggling, this, this was not on uh, people's radars. Can I hear you say again, it's not 2008? Yeah, it's not 2008. This is not um, a systemic credit issue where, uh, you know, there are going to be other uh, balance, problems on the left side of banks' balance sheets. This is all on the right side. This is all funding, liquidity, deposits, and confidence. This is not, oh boy, everybody's sitting on a bunch of bad bonds. As you said a moment ago, the, the Silicon Valley uh, balance sheet, the securities portfolio, was a bunch of treasuries and double A rated mortgage backed securities, you know, Fannie Freddie stuff. These are not subprime loans that are packaged up and put and, on the balance sheet. And what happened, and, and we don't need to dwell on this too long because I think it's increasingly well known, but, you know, Silicon Valley grew <clears throat> their deposit, they, they doubled their deposits in 2020, 2021 over that two year period by a magnitude of you know, almost $100 billion. And they just couldn't lend that deposit inflow out quick enough, right. which is understandable. And so when banks find themselves in that situation, they put that deposit overflow into securities. The, the mistake in hindsight that Silicon Valley made was they went out the curve as they were investing those excess deposits in 20 and 21 by buying things with four, five, six-year duration, but again, high-quality instruments. And when the, the Fed started to tighten, they were slow to either adjust the duration of that portfolio, buy hedges, however you want to you know, risk manage it. Um, and so they ended up with a pretty big unrealized loss in that portfolio. Um, they opted last week to try and sell some of those securities in a transaction that in isolation kind of made sense in terms of taking a loss, backfilling it with some capital. They had already kind of booked the loss on their their balance sheet. So, you know, from a, a, again, blinders on sort of perspective, what they were trying to do here in the last couple of weeks wasn't nuts. The problem was it was misinterpreted by their deposit base. And this gets to where now you really had the, the crux of this crisis. Um, you know, that, that deposit base of Silicon Valley was way too concentrated. Right. Because it wasn't just that they had all these small tech and healthcare companies that were their depositors. It was really that, you know, they had a hundred key relationships with the, the, the venture capital and private equity firms that owned all these companies. And when a couple of those VC and PE firms last week sensed or got wind that there might be something wrong at Silicon Valley, they sent an email to their entire portfolio of, you know, 50 companies, I'm making that up, 
and said, hey, everybody, get out. Get out. And that is a very small clubby world. Right. And as soon as a couple of them did it, everybody did it. And, you know, the the stat that now is becoming, uh, I think, well-known, but is worth repeating, on Thursday, in a six-hour span, $42 billion of deposits were withdrawn or attempted to be withdrawn from Silicon Valley Bank because of this stampede created by a very small number of of depositors of, of, of VCs. Compare that to 2008 when Washington Mutual went under and, and had to be taken over by the, the Fed and J.P. Morgan. In the two weeks leading up to their collapse, they had $17 billion of cumulative outflow. So two weeks to take out $17 billion at WAMU versus six hours. Everything's so much faster these So days. much faster. You put something out on Twitter, get out. Exactly. And- so Silicon Valley was essentially done on, on Thursday night, which is why Friday morning California time, the regulators had to take the bank over. They couldn't even wait to the weekend. Help me understand this number, something like 93 or 97%, depending on where you read, of the deposits were not insured. Was that a mistake of the CFOs at these tech startup companies? Do these tech startup companies have CFOs? <laughs> they, they should. Most do. Um, you know, it's a fair question. I think part of the problem is Silicon Valley Bank's been around for 35 years. They have long-standing relationships and, and, and earned well-earned re- good relationships with all these these constituents in this ecosystem, the venture capital firms, the management teams of these companies, they had earned their trust. And so the, 90% of the innovation economy out there was in some way banking with Silicon Valley. It's just what you did. And so uh, that mentality exacerbated this and created, I think, a higher amount of uninsured deposits than you might see in sort of a normally diversified set of, of clients. Um, and for over three decades, that wasn't a problem. Right. So again, it just—it's amazing that when all of a sudden there was someone yelling smoke, the, the you know the proverbial smoke in a dark uh, movie Crowded theater, theater yeah. it 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 caused otherwise you would think sophisticated financial people, VCs, private equity folks, to to panic, and and no one hesitated to just pull everything. And Silicon Valley on HBO was one of my favorite shows. And I remember, right, Richard had to deal with so many different issues. I don't think he ever actually had to deal with his (laughs) his deposits being uninsured. That's true. Is this typical of other banks? The The deposit issue? Being uninsured? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's typical in that certainly for commercial banks, yes, the the majority of their clients are keeping more than $250,000 with them in in various deposit accounts. Again, I think what might have been atypical here is these these clients weren't diverse. They didn't have six operating accounts. Because if I'm a CFO of a, a startup tech company, I've got a lot more to do than worry about, like, am I properly diversifying my cash when I'm just burning it anyways, right. trying to come up with the next product we're working on? You know, so they weren't spending their time as other companies might, more you know, sophisticated or larger companies, building out a whole portfolio of relationships and properly moving accounts. You know, it, Silicon Valley can do most of the things that these startups needed, and so they were all comfortable working with them as their primary, if not exclusive, bank. So speaking of being comfortable, has the was the policy response enough? Are you comfortable with what the Fed, the FDIC, and the Treasury have done? I think so. Um, and it's still evolving as we, we talk on, on Tuesday morning here. Um, but I'm glad that yesterday, Monday, went relatively well in terms of no additional failures. 
Um, I do think that the the regulators over the weekend had to dep- uh, insure all the deposits or, or provide a, a discount window and a backstop for the uninsured deposits as much as that created a, a now well-discussed moral hazard that we can in a moment chat about. But I do think it was necessary, um, and I think it will get us through the, the shock part of this crisis. I think people will, over the next few weeks, finish moving deposits around to um, get comfortable that they aren't going to be vulnerable to a, a situation like this with you know all their with everyone's legacy banking relationships and so I, I think we've, we've weathered the worst of that storm now there are definitely some additional issues that need to be be dealt with in the industry um, and we're, we're I'm sure going to talk about those but I do think up front this was a relatively effective coordinated response and um, I'm glad the regulators sort of pushed back on the political rhetoric over the weekend that that suggested maybe we let Silicon Valley fail. I think that would have been, especially with Signature right behind it, if you had let both these banks fail, that's $300 billion of, of failed assets, um, com- commercial assets with a lot of a lot of important c- corporate and commercial relationships. That, that would have been a tough blow. Now, you and I are both sitting here in downtown New York City. I did walk by Zuccotti Park this morning. I did not see people occupying Wall Street, <laughs> at least at least just yet. Um, this idea of a bailout or this idea of taxpayer money being spent on this, is that largely a misnomer? Is the FDIC overfunded so that they can provide support on the deposits? Well, they're, they're properly funded. I don't know if they're overfunded after, after this, but, <laughs> but what they have said is they are going to uh, assess all the other FDIC banks uh, a fee, an assessment fee, to essentially pay for this retroactively. Got so it. at some point in the next few months, every bank CEO in America, I guess, is going to get they're going to get a bill, a bill in the mail that says, "Hey, you owe X to pay for Silicon Valley and Signature's mistakes," and they're not going to have to pay the full amount because, again, the FDIC does have a decent amount in the trust fund right now, and they're they're selling down assets. I mean, they're actually going back to what we talked about a minute ago. There's a lot of good collateral at both banks, but particularly at Silicon Valley Bank, that the regulators now can, can sell and sell use assets, to, right. to help manage the... So this isn't going to end up being a $100 billion hit to the industry. But, but to the extent there is a little additional needed to kind of true up the trust fund after that, yeah, the, they're going to charge the member banks. And that's just going to be one of many incremental new things the banks that survive this are going to have to be grappling with. Yeah, it feels like a small price to pay to avoid a run on the banks, but nonetheless. So let's talk about the issues that the banks are now facing. As an investor and somebody who works in the financial sector, are you optimistic about the banks or you still have concerns? So uh, I still have concerns and, and I can discuss a few different issues here. The first is you still have a inverted yield curve, <laughs> albeit less inverted, less inverted than a week ago, but <laughs> um, but still an inverted yield curve and a lot of pressure on just their core fundamentals. Put aside all the liquidity stuff that just happened. Now, the next issue is every bank CEO in America right now has no idea what his or her deposit base is going to look like tonight or tomorrow night right. still, right? Things are still moving around. So uh, by the time, it will be incredible to listen to these Q1 earnings calls next month and see where the quarter balance sheets ended up and, and what that's going to mean just in terms of near-term earnings and, and growth outlooks. I mean, banks are going to have to potentially, you know, shrink and, and, and reset expectations to the extent they've seen outflows. Maybe they've seen inflows. 
of deposits. You right. know, this could go both directions. Some of the larger money center banks. But but ironically, the larger banks that are probably taking deposit inflows are going to have to put up more capital. Right. They, they almost don't want it. Yeah. If you notice, <laughs> Chase and B of A aren't paying you a lot for your right. uh, checking account. Right. right? Like, I, I notice like, it every month. <laughs> exactly. I'll and, notice it on my tax returns also and, to put down my 12 cents. <laughs> and, and that's not changing because they don't really want our deposits given how, again, the, the way the regulators treat excess deposits like that. Um, so my point is, th- there's still a lot of stuff moving around that is going to require these these banks to, you know, step back, be cautious, be conservative, just in terms of near-term operating funnels. Intermediate term, the issue here, I think, particularly for the the regionals and kind of that group of banks just below the the top ten SIFI banks, um, is that the, the there are going to be a whole swath of new regulations and capital requirements. I mean, I'm already hearing things. After the global financial crisis, the Fed and the regulators put in a whole set of uh, rules for those top 10 banks, but they cut it off at like two banks with 250 billion of assets. Around. They are going to. How did dr- that go? <laughs> it, it sort of worked, uh, but these banks, which ironically got just up close to that, yeah, right? They were very close. You know, 100 and 200 billion respectively in assets. They're going to lower that threshold, right? And and so are they going to lower it to 50 or t- who knows? But but I guarantee that the next 75 to 200 banks on that list of assets are preparing for a whole bunch of incremental disclosures, you know, new audits they're going to have to go through with the regulators, increased capital charges, you know, carrying more capital for for all the different activities they're they're doing. This is going to be incremental operating. I remember vividly going back after the financial crisis meeting with lots of banks, including banks like First Republic and Silicon Valley, um, who I, I knew well back in 2010, 11, and 12, and how much they were complaining about all the hiring they were having to do right. after the financial crisis to manage all these new rules and regulations that they were being asked to comply with. In fact, the joke for a while was the best job you could try to get coming out of school was to be like, you know, someone that had any interest in or expertise in like bank regulation <laughs> because there was a feeding frenzy for these right. people. Right, right. I, I think financial- Eisenhower probably should have warned us about the regulatory industrial Complex, that's, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think it will be quite that severe, but there's going to be an element of that for these regional banks now as we move into the, the back half of this year and next year. Which I have to assume means slower nominal growth for the economy as well, right? This whole idea that we're moving to a new level of nominal growth in this inflationary world, does this take away some of that? It might, in, 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 in two ways. First, just in general, yeah, as banks, the, the, the overall level are pausing a little bit to make sure they understand, you know, what's my deposit base look like? And then what's the, what are the, the rules to, of the game going forward? Regulatory wise, they're going to be less inclined to make a new loan, maybe less inclined to onboard certain types of clients. Um, but then very specifically, the second thing I'd mentioned is in the technology healthcare verticals that are directly affected by the, the Silicon Valley um, failure, yeah, th- there's going to be a period of friction here where you know you've got to go find a new bank. You've got to move, and it's not just oh, I've got to move my deposits over. It's you know I've got to move my payroll system. I've got I had a line of credit that I was using with vendors. I had 16 vendors hooked in that was. Now I got to move that. Well, guess what? The the banks that you want to move to either aren't going to be able to do everything because they're now afraid to bring on all those relationships you know as, as quickly as they otherwise might, or they're only going to do two things. Yeah, okay. 
you know, Brian, you can bring me your deposits, but I'm not going to do all the other stuff that Silicon Valley was doing. I can't or I don't want to. So now I'm going to have to go find three new relationships. And that may take me four months. And in the meantime, I can't do all the, the growth investing that I wanted to do. That's as a, a shame, right? I mean, that just means a less innovative economy in the near term. Exactly. And it'll, it'll sort itself it'll out. Sort I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. suggest this is a, a long-term issue, but it's definitely a short-term disruptive issue um, on the, particularly the smaller end of the, the innovation economy. And uh, yeah, I think the the broader growth outlook could be be a little bit impaired by this. this and if the broader growth outlook is impaired, then that should potentially uh, support the type of strategies that you invest in or the type of strategies that you manage. Because if you're back to a slow growth world, we probably need to pay up for growth wherever we can find it again, that, right? That's right. I think companies that are secular growers that have, you know, uh, products and, and, and ideas that are not as sensitive to the economy um, and are well-managed and, and, and well-capitalized are going to have increased advantages and get you know better valuations. And, and that is exactly the universe that we, we try to focus on in, in our different portfolios. Um, th- this isn't, though, like we were, the economy wasn't ripping and all of a sudden this is going to tip it down. <laughs> the economy was already, I'd argue, moving into a slow growth environment and this is perhaps just going to nudge it a little bit more down that that Recession. trajectory. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, Semantics, probably. I agree. I th- exactly. I think it's it's less important whether we actually go negative for a couple quarters on GD, nominal GDP or not. Um, I do think the inflation topic is important because right. I think the I think Fed and monetary policy matters more than anything. Um, ironic- as always, <laughs> as always, ironically, the the events with the banks here probably caused the Fed to be a little more dovish um, than they might have wanted Silver to linings, be. Silver perhaps. lining, but we just saw, you know, a few minutes ago, a CPI number that was, you know, for the month of February, in line with an, with expectations at least, but still six percent overall, five and a half x food. That is. That is not the three percent ish number that I think the Fed ideally would like to get to. Right. Forget two. I think three is what they're really sure. I don't think you're seeing three percent this year. I mean, the 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 pace of improvement in inflation is slowing. It's it's going to keep declining, but it is not going to collapse. I think just based on the latest trends. So that's the that's per, perhaps the biggest impediment is that the Fed is going to have to keep rates elevated at whatever the ultimate terminal rate is, probably well into next year, and that's going to continue to be a drag on the economy. Now you layer on top of that. What's just happened with the bank system, where the banks are going to be a little more reluctant to lend and, and, and be as aggressive as they might have otherwise been, particularly in certain parts of the economy uh, that were serviced by banks like Silicon Valley. And and yeah, it's, it's a recipe for a slow, slow growth environment. So I can't let us end on a negative, though. I've got a growth manager here. His last name is Living Good. <laughs> right? give, give me some optimism. Well, well so I... Okay, first of all, I do think, again, we're through the shock part of this banking right. crisis. So let's, on the topic of this podcast, at least, I do think we've, we've seen the light at the end of the tunnel. There's, there, again, there's going to be a lot of, of subsequent stuff to deal with for the banks, but I think it's all manageable. And I think our, our regulators and our banking system came through this relatively well. Um, and again, this is not a credit-related issue, which suggests this isn't going to be as pervasive as the financial crisis of 08 or 09. So hopefully that's some good news. Um, I also I'll think, take it. Yeah, we'll take it. Uh, you know, even though I just said the Fed is the most important thing for the economy, uh, you know, they are essentially done or near done raising rates. 
And so there is some optimism in my mind that, you know, th- we've reestablished a proper equilibrium and in, in, in monetary policy, and that's going to let people adjust to kind of a, a more normally geo curve, whether that's in the housing industry or, you know, industrial parts of the economy. And as that reset happens, I think that's healthy and that's good. And that's going to be a stronger base for the economy and for the stock market to operate from in the next two to three years. I'm not saying that's going to cause anything perhaps in 2023 that's particularly exciting. But we, we needed to get away from some of the, uh, the things that had happened the prior three years between COVID, the war. This has been an incredible stretch of volatility and just really unusual circumstances we needed to get back to a, a more normal operating environment, and we're, we're, we're getting there. Well, let's look forward to that more normal operating environment. Justin Livingood, Portfolio Manager of the Invesco Midcap Growth Strategy, as well as a, a manager on the Discovery Growth Strategies. Thank you so much for being here. This has been incredibly informative, and we look forward to having you again soon. Thanks, Brian. You've been listening to Invesco's Greater Possibilities podcast. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are based on current market conditions as of March 14, 2023, and are subject to change without notice. These opinions may differ from those of other Invesco investment professionals. This does not constitute a recommendation of any investment strategy or product for a particular investor. Investors should consult a financial professional before making any investment decisions. Should this contain any forward-looking statements, understand they are not guarantees of future results. They involve risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. There can be no assurance that the actual results will not differ materially from expectations. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Data on the size of bank failures sourced from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, as of March 13, 2023. Data on the amount of uninsured deposits at banks sourced from the FDIC as of March 10, 2023. Information on the growth of deposits and makeup of assets on Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet sourced from the FDIC as of March 13, 2023. Information on the speed and amount of withdrawals at Silicon Valley Bank compared to 2008 events sourced from the FDIC as of March 13, 2023. Data on the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, sourced from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics as of February 28, 2023. The CPI measures changes in consumer prices. The profitability of businesses in the financial services sector depends on the availability and cost of money and may fluctuate significantly in response to changes in government regulation, interest rates, and general economic conditions. These businesses often operate with substantial financial leverage. Growth stocks tend to be more sensitive to changes in their earnings and can be more volatile. Interest rate risk refers to the risk that bond prices generally fall as interest rates rise and vice versa. An issuer may be unable to meet interest and or principal payments, thereby causing its instruments to decrease in value and lowering the issuer's credit rating. Treasury securities are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government as to the timely payment of principal and interest. Mortgage and asset-backed securities are subject to prepayment or call risk, which is the risk that the borrower's payments may be received earlier or later than expected due to changes in prepayment rates on underlying loans. Securities may be prepaid at a price less than the original purchase value. A systematically important financial institution, or SIFI, is a financial institution that U.S. federal regulators say would pose a serious risk to the economy if it collapsed. The yield curve plots interest rates at a set point in time of bonds having equal credit quality but differing maturity dates to project future interest rate changes and economic activity. An inverted yield curve is one in which shorter-term bonds have a higher yield than longer-term bonds of the same credit quality. 
In a normal yield curve, longer-term bonds have a higher yield. A credit rating is an assessment provided by a nationally recognized statistical rating organization, NRSRO, of the credit worthiness of an issuer with respect to debt obligations, including specific securities, money market instruments, or other debts. Ratings are measured on a scale that generally ranges from AAA highest to D lowest. Ratings are subject to change without notice. NR indicates that the debtor was not rated and should not be interpreted as indicating low quality. For more information on rating methodologies, please visit the NRSRO website for Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch ratings. The Greater Possibilities Podcast is brought to you by Invesco Distributors, Inc.